Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 7th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal reversed a summary judgment against an injured worker in an exclusive remedy power press exception case. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Santos versus Crenshaw Manufacturing. Maribel Santos was employed by Crenshaw Manufacturing as a machine operator. She was instructed by her supervisor, Jose Flores, to operate a material forming machine utilizing a die without any protective guards or cages. Ordinarily, Santos would have had to use both hands to operate the machine. However, this time she was instructed to operate it from the side using a bypass button. Using the machine in this manner allowed Santos to operate the machine with her right hand, leaving her left hand free to reach into the machine to press down the part being cut. Santos was operating the machine in 2017 when her left hand was crushed underneath the die, mutilating it and severely injuring it. She filed a workers' comp claim against Crenshaw Manufacturing, her employer. She also filed a civil action against Crenshaw for violation of Labor Code 4558, which allows an action against the employer where the injury is caused by a removal of or knowing failure to install a point of operation guard on a power press. This is known as the power press exception to the exclusive remedy of workers' compensation. The machine in this case was manufactured way back in 1937 by a company called Niagara Machine and Tool Works, and it was purchased by Crenshaw along with other equipment in 2013 from another business. Crenshaw filed a motion for summary judgment in the civil action, asserting that Santos failed to meet the requirements of the power press exception and argued that the manufacturer had never designed, provided, installed, or specified any particular guard or barrier to be used with the machine. The trial court granted summary judgment in favor of the employer. However, the Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished case. Crenshaw argued that Section 4558 requires a manufacturer to convey specific information to identify a particular point of operation guard, which was not done in this case. However, the Court of Appeal noted that the case law has only established that a high degree of specificity in the manufacturer safety directives will suffice under 4558, but not what was the lowest degree of specificity that would suffice. Thus, when a defendant moves for summary judgment, its declarations and evidence must either establish a complete defense to plaintiff's action or demonstrate the absence of an essential element of the plaintiff's case. Here, this standard was not met, and the summary judgment was therefore reversed. And now our crime report. 46-year-old Orlando Gillum of Fresno pleaded guilty to mail fraud in connection with the false claims he submitted to public and private health insurers. 
Gillum is the founder and CEO of Dunamis Incorporated, a group home, a nonprofit that provided services that included alcohol and drug treatment and counseling. He falsely billed insurers hundreds of thousands of dollars for alcohol and drug treatment and counseling and mental health treatment and group and individual psychotherapy. Those individuals did not receive the services billed, and several of them were not even his clients. The conviction is yet another example of how California has become the Rehab Riviera for fraudulent treatment centers that seek to exploit California's specific regulations and sometimes lacks oversight in an attempt to cash in on the lucrative industry. In California, even someone convicted of fraud or drug dealing or medical malpractice can make money in the rehab business. Gillum is scheduled to be sentenced on November 20th. He faces a maximum statutory penalty of 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. 57-year-old Selena Singh and 30-year-old Kabir Singh pled guilty to conspiracy to commit insurance premium fraud and related felonies. Both defendants also admitted to an aggravated white-collar crime enhancement for a loss exceeding a half a million dollars through a pattern of criminal activity. The investigation of this case started after an employee severed his thumb while working on a construction job site. The injured employee and his site safety supervisor reported that Selena Singh directed them to lie about the injury occurring on the construction job site and instead to report it occurred while working for one of the family's other companies. The two used their companies to hire, employ, and pay construction laborers, carpenters, painters, and other workers in order to complete construction work as they fraudulently misrepresented the construction payroll to insurance carriers in less dangerous industries such as clerical and consulting in order to lower their insurance rates. Investigators located another injured employee that reported that Kabir Singh asked him not to report his injury and offered to pay his medical expenses instead of reporting the injury to the company's insurance. An audit by a forensic accountant concluded that the defendants evaded over $2 million of insurance premiums, in addition to over $200,000 of evaded payroll tax owed to the state of California. The maximum sentence for those charges is 11 years and 8 months in prison. Sentencing is scheduled for November 19 at the Contra Costa County Superior Court. And in regulatory news, California lawmakers wrapped up a legislative session on the last day of August, largely defined by the pandemic. The bills that passed will next head to Governor Newsom, who will have until September 30 to sign or veto the measures. The legislature passed SB 1159, which would make it easier for police, firefighters, and other essential employees who contract COVID-19 on the job to be awarded workers' compensation benefits by establishing a disputable presumption of compensability. The new law was declared an urgency measure, which means if signed by the governor, the law will take effect immediately 
instead of on January 1. Also going to the governor is Assembly Bill 3216, a proposal pushed by unions that would create significant labor protections for hotel, janitorial, airport, event center, and building maintenance workers. The bill requires employers in those industries to first rehire workers they laid off during a state of emergency, including in cases in which a new owner takes over a business. The legislature also passed a budget trailer bill, which would require food sector companies, health care providers, and emergency responders with more than 500 employees to provide two weeks of supplemental paid sick leave for full-time workers who are unable to work after being exposed to the coronavirus or contracting, contacting coronavirus. The legislature also approved AB 276, which would raise the amount Californians can borrow penalty-free from their employer-sponsored retirement accounts to $100,000 from $50,000 if they have been financially impacted by the pandemic. Another proposal approved by the legislature, AB 2537, would require general acute care hospitals to stockpile three months of protective equipment supplies by April 1 or face a fine of up to $25,000. And AB 2043 would require the state's Division of Occupational Safety and Health to compile and publicly report investigations into agricultural workplace conditions related to COVID-19, as well as illnesses from the virus. Lawmakers also approved SB 275, which calls for the state to build a supply of medical equipment. Hospitals and other healthcare employers would be required to assemble a 45 day supply by June 1, 2023. A new study by rating bureaus around the country reveals a surge in workers' compensation mega claims of at least $3 million continues as medical treatments and technologies advance. While these mega-claims comprise a statistically small percentage of all workers' comp claims, these claims are reaching the mega-threshold more quickly. The study includes data from 43 states and the District of Columbia. And experts say the upward trend is likely to continue. Overall, mega-claims account for upwards of $2 billion in workers' comp costs each year. While fewer than 50% of mega-claims reached the $3 million threshold by 18 months from policy inception, these claims are reaching that number more quickly than in the past. The types of claims most likely to develop into mega-claims including spinal cord injuries, brain injuries, and severe burns. Presumption laws, such as those covering a range of cancers for firefighters, or heart conditions for law enforcement officers can also lead to claims cresting the mega threshold. Then there are the massive claims that should not be that big, said William Zachary, the San Carlos, California-based workers' comp consultant and board member of the California State Compensation Insurance Fund. 
Mr. Zachary claims that if you can identify and intervene very early, it is possible to really change the dynamic and change the outcomes of many of these cases. The WCIRB published its quarterly experience report as of March 31, 2020. Written premium for 2019 is 7% below that for 2018 and 12% below the peak in 2016. And premium continues to decline in 2020. Written premium for the first quarter of 2020 is 5% below that for the first quarter of the year before. With the COVID-19 pandemic-related economic slowdown, the WCIRB expects employer payroll and insurer premium to decline sharply for the remainder of 2020. And rates have declined as well. The average charge rate for the first quarter of 2020 is 7% below that for 2019 and 39% below the peak in 2014. The January 1, 2020 approved advisory pure premium rates are, on average, 47% below those for 2015. And the loss ratio is also increasing. The projected loss ratio for 2019 is 5 points above that for 2018, primarily driven by lower premium rates. These ultimate projections as of March 31, 2020, are generally consistent with those as of recent prior quarters, as the trends in downward loss development have moderated through March 31, 2020. Loss development for the remainder of 2020 will likely be impacted by the pandemic and stay-at-home orders. The projected combined ratio for 2019 is 8 points higher than 2018 and 16 points higher than the low point in 2016, as premium levels have dropped, while claim frequency and severity increased moderately. Despite the recent increase in combined ratio for 2013 through 2019, are below 100% and are the lowest since the 2003 to 2007 time period. The COVID-19 crisis is likely to significantly reduce premium levels in 2020, and may increase overall costs, leading to further increases in the combined ratio. There is, however, some good news. Indemnity claims have settled quicker over the last several years, largely driven by SB 863 and SB 1160 reforms. The ratio for 2019 is consistent with 2018, suggesting claim settlement rates may be plateauing. The impact of COVID-19 crisis on overall 2020 claim frequency is not yet clear. Although many claims arising from exposure to the virus continue to be filed, the slowdown in economic activity is expected to reduce claim filings. The pandemic has revealed new failings in the rickety technology that underpins public services in California, most recently leading Governor Gavin Newsom to trumpet an erroneous decline in coronavirus infections. The Silicon Valley state's woes reflect a larger problem in public sector technology that has plagued governments for years but are coming to the fore during the nation's coronavirus 
crisis. Florida's unemployment claims website, billed by Deloitte, has faltered so badly this year that Governor Ron DeSantis called it a jalopy. Other states, such as Wisconsin and New Jersey, are likewise struggling to keep pace with claims, in part because they say their systems rely on decades-old programming languages. California Assemblyman David Chu, a San Francisco Democrat, said that almost every month Sacramento is briefed on yet another incredible IT failure in state government. The challenge that state government has with technology has been going on for years, if not decades, he says. On top of California's backlog of nearly one million unemployment claims, the state has experienced long-standing issues at the Department of Motor Vehicles, whose offices only began accepting credit card payments last year. California's IT problems stem in part from chronic underinvestment in new technology and mismanagement of the money it has put into upgrades. The pandemic has forced various state systems into overdrive. None has been tested like the Employment Development Department, which is buckling under a tenfold increase in people filing for unemployment and having to send checks to 4.4 million residents, more than one in five workers statewide. A letter sent to Governor Newsom last week by 71 California state lawmakers pointed out a litany of failures at the EDD, including taking up to six weeks to return customer service phone calls, not providing translation of documents into languages other than English, and not allowing applicants to edit their applications once submitted or uploaded to verification documents. Lawmakers said a more systemic problem is the state's over-reliance on contractors who routinely come in tens of millions of dollars over budget and years behind schedule. The EDD's latest modernization plan has been underway since 2016 and is not scheduled to finish until 2027. The lawmakers said in their letter that a previous attempt by EDD's longtime contractor Deloitte in 2010 ended up costing twice the original estimate and never solved the basic problems. And in medical news, today, even as the healthcare system and economy face strains from the coronavirus and its complications, scores of doctors and patients are avoiding large bureaucratic hospitals and instead are flocking toward leaner and meaner models of healthcare. Professional providers of all types, from surgeons to drugstore owners, are focusing on innovation. Walgreens and Village MD, for instance, have partnered to open primary care centers in 500 to 700 drugstores over a five-year period. These centers will provide annual checkups, walk-in appointments, and many other services. Physician-led teams of four people will treat up to 120 patients each day at these mostly 3,300-square-foot locations. This model is the latest iteration of a trend called decentralized care, 
in which patients obtain treatment through a telehealth service and outpatient surgery centers and clinics, rather than by visiting hospitals. For two decades, experts have predicted that decentralization in healthcare would follow other industries on this path, such as travel, retail, and financial services. It was only a matter of time before healthcare innovators improved access to services and reduced costs. Two key factors are driving this emerging trend. One, urgent care clinics and expanded pharmacy services are improving the efficiency of healthcare delivery. And secondly, more people, especially older adults, are receiving care at home. Americans who support this free market health trend share some of the top reasons for its popularity, including convenience and price transparency. The experience of hospitals with significant surges of severely ill COVID-infected patients has delivered a powerful marketing case for the future of palliative care. Studies have shown that palliative care improves quality of life and reduces caregiver burden. However, not everyone can access it because of a shortage of clinicians, services, and programs, especially for people outside of the hospital who are seriously ill but not hospice eligible. But telemedicine can dramatically increase access for people in community settings, at home, in assisted living facilities, and in long-term care. It's not only more efficient for the clinician, it expands access for patients who can get to the clinic only with difficulty. And an assistant professor of geriatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, recently developed a telepalliative care program at the San Francisco VA Medical Center focusing on patients who were homebound or who lived four hours or more from the clinic. But the future of telemedicine and palliative care will depend on reimbursement. Currently, temporary emergency Medicare waivers, extended for three months on July 23rd, have allowed payment for professional telehealth and some telephone visits including physicians, advanced care planning, conversations with patients and families. The emergency will end eventually, but at least 20 bills have been introduced in Congress to make some aspects of telemedicine coverage permanent. And in other industry news, State Compensation Insurance Fund announced plans to distribute an approximate $75 million dividend to its qualifying policyholders. This dividend equals about 10% of the estimated annual premium reported during that period. State Fund's board will consider dividends again for the remainder of 2020 policy year later this year. Through July of this year, State Fund reported about $700 million in estimated annual premium and about $60 million in realized capital gains. The state fund president and CEO, Vern Steiner, said that the strong, stable financial position and the claims outcomes seen over the past several years allows a return of premium money to policyholders. 
State Fund has paid out more than $5 billion in dividends to policyholders over its history, more than any other California workers' compensation carrier. Just last year, State Fund declared an approximate $160 million dividend for 2019 policyholders. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.